If you're able, would you remain standing? We're going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. First John chapter 2, starting at verse 3. This is the word of our Lord. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write, to no, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him and in you? Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that we will be able to receive this word in humility. We pray that the proclamation of, of this portion of your word would be done also in humility. That your grace will be apparent to all of us. We're asking in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think it is fair to say that we all like certainty. Uh, we want to know what's next. We prefer not being surprised by, by life. Is that the reason why we get anxious? Because there is lack of certainty? Because there's some level of uncertainty in our life? Is it why we try to run through a thousand what-if scenarios before we start living uh, life. We want to have certainty. We want to achieve a comfortable level of certainty. That's something that's appealing to us, certainty. Another word for certainty is the word for assurance. We naturally want to be sure of things. Uh, I've never met somebody, they may exist out there, but I've never met anybody who says, you know what, I prefer to be unsure about things. I prefer not to know what the big thing is. I prefer just to be ignorant and oblivious. Um, some somebody act like some people act that way, but no, I don't. I've never met somebody who would say that that is the case. Now, John says in this passage that there is at least one thing we can be sure of, one thing that we can be very certain about, and that thing is our salvation. John gives us in this passage a couple of tests for us to examine our claim to faith. And to claim something is to say that something's true about us. So John gives us a couple of ways in this passage to figure out if what we say concerning what we believe is true or not. To give us some assurance about what we say concerning our faith in Christ. He, in other words, to use John's very words, he is helping us know that we know. 
He's, he's trying to help us uh, have the tools so that we know that our faith is real, that we know that we know. Uh, later on, John is going to add a third test to these two that we see here in this passage. And he, the, that third test will have to do with what we believe concerning Jesus Christ. In this passage we read this morning, he talks about the test of obedience. Is what you believe generating obedience in your life? And he talks about the test of love. Is your faith in Christ causing you to love the brethren? We're going to take a look at the first one this morning, this idea of your faith, if it's genuine, will invariably produce obedience to what the Bible says. We're going to... uh, I I, I already had somebody come to me and said, man, these 1 John sermons, they seem a lot alike each other. And I'll just say, that's going to continue. Because John keeps on repeating himself. It's not a very outlinable book. It goes in a spiral and is going to revisit these very things that we're going to talk about this morning later on in chapter 3 and again in chapter 4. And yes, again in chapter 5. So if the Holy Spirit inspired John to repeat himself, it must be a good thing for us to hear these things time and again. And as, as you notice, as we're reading this passage in verses 3 through 11, John once again employs the same affirmations and denials structure that he used in chapter 1 to get his point across. And I find that very helpful. Uh, it is helpful to have him say, I mean this and not that. And that's what affirmations and denials do. John says, if your, your faith is real, this is, a, this is what it's going to look like. And if your faith is real, this is how it's not going to look like. And I find that helpful to be able to see those things. And I want you to notice there that John starts in chapter 2, verse 3, by saying, Now by this we know that we know Him. To know that you know is to be assured of the thing that you know. I hope you can follow that. To know that you know is to be assured of the thing that you know. And here, the object of that knowledge is Him. And it's not specified who the Him is. I do think that as you look through this passage, all the capital He's and all the capital Him's refer to Jesus Christ. Because if you look at verse 6, it ends with John saying that we are to walk as He walked. And the one who walked among us was Jesus Christ. So when he says that, when John says that he wants us to know that we know him, what he's saying is that he wants us to know that we know Jesus Christ. He wants to help us see if our faith in him is real. And it's important for us to know that the word, the idea of knowing in the Bible, to know in the Bible, goes beyond having cognitive knowledge about a person. Now, um, Friday, Josiah Hunter came to visit me. And he's very sharply dressed, like he always, uh, matching from top to bottom, as he usually does. And I know things about Josiah, right? I know he's blonde. I know his last name is Hunter. I know that he is, well, I don't even know. I know. I think I know he's six, seven. I know he's seven now, right? <laughs> I know... He used to like trucks and diggers a lot. I don't know if he still does. See, these are things I know about Josiah. These are cognitive 
things, things in my head I know about Josiah. That's not how the Bible uses the word know in relation to people in the Bible. It goes way beyond that. To know is to have an intimate and personal relationship with somebody else. For example, in Genesis 4, verse 1, the Bible tells us that Adam knew Eve, and what was the result of that knowledge? She got pregnant. So you can see that the word know is used with, uh, with use of a relationship that goes beyond knowing things about somebody else, right? In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, the Bible says that God only knew Israel of all the families of the earth. Is Amos the prophet meaning that God was unaware that there were other countries? No, there's a special relationship, intimate, special relationship with Israel there. So to know someone is to have a deep, personal, intimate relationship. And to know someone in this context of 1 John is synonymous with being in a relationship or united with that person. And notice that John says that to know him in the passage is equivalent to being in him in verse 5. Abiding in Him in verse 6, and being in the light in verse 9. These are all different ways of describing what it means to know Him. And all these are equivalent with believing in Him. When we first started this book, we saw that John wrote 1 John. This is the Apostle John. And he wrote 1 John to be a companion to his gospel. The fourth gospel in our New Testament, the gospel according to John. He wrote First John to go along with some of the things he already had said in the gospel. And in the gospel, John tells us that his goal in writing that book is that you would believe in Jesus. In other words, he wrote the gospel so that you would know Jesus. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says this, Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I picked these events in Jesus' life. I picked these miracles in Jesus' life. I picked these teachings so that you will come to know who Jesus is. Not just cognitively but have an intimate and personal relationship based on faith with Jesus Christ. So he now writes 1 John to the same people who had come to believe in Jesus to help them know that they have known Jesus Christ. That's the goal here in chapter 2, verse 3, but also in chapter 5, verse 13. Look at 1 John 5, 13. John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So you've believed in Him, and I'm writing so that you know that you believed in Him. The assurance of knowing Jesus Christ. As you remember, when he first started this book, I mentioned that John is writing in response to false teachers. False teachers have come in the church and they're teaching things that are contrary to the apostolic teaching. And the false teachers that had come into the church claimed that they had some special knowledge. that some special information. Nobody else had it. So always be suspicious of any religious teacher that says, I have some new knowledge that nobody else ever heard about. 
there's a reason why nobody else has ever heard about it. So be suspicious of that. But these teachers are coming to the church said, we have new stuff. Some stuff that you can get anywhere else but from me. And if you're really good to me, I'll impart that knowledge to you. Well, John then turns around and uses the claim of knowledge to show the church that they don't need some special knowledge. They already know how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he wants them to know that they know that. John uses the word to know and it's... Um, relatives 40 times in this little epistle so he just keeps on using the same word as the false teachers were wanted to use hey you want a knowledge here's what knowledge is do you believe in the lord jesus christ are you in an intimate relationship with him a personal relationship with him so before you know that you know jesus what do you need to do you need to know jesus have you come to faith in him have you repented of your sins, turning from them, confessing them to God, and asking Him to receive you because of what Jesus did for sin is just like you in His life and on the cross? Do you know Jesus? And if you don't, today is a day of salvation. Don't wait any more second. It is now. There's no reason for you to not come to know Jesus right now. Because you cannot know that you know Him. Till you have known Him through the work of the Spirit in your heart. As you repent from your sins, turn from it with hatred for them and turn to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ as the Spirit works in you to be forgiven of all your sins. But the point that John wants to make is that we need, we should pursue this knowledge that we know Jesus. We should pursue the assurance of our salvation. Look again at verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. John says that the proof that you truly know God is in the pudding of your obedience. And I never know, knew where this word came from, or this expression came from. But it's an, an ancient expression from the 14th century, saying that you really don't know how something tastes till you take a bite into it. So the proof of your faith is in the taste of it. It is in the doing of it. It is in... You're obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or to use John's words, for those who claim to know Jesus, he gives us a test. Do you obey what God says in his word? Now, I want you to notice that John doesn't say anything about how you feel about Jesus. That's not the test of your faith. Oh, I feel these warm and fuzzy feelings in my heart, on the pit of my stomach, and so on. That's not the criteria to know if you know Jesus. There's nothing to do with your feelings, at least not originally or primarily. The authentic claims of knowing God in verses 3 and 4, of living in Christ in verse 6, and in being the light in verse 9, which are all different ways of, to claim that you are a Christian, will invariably show themselves in a life of obeying God, in verse 4, a life of imitating Christ, in verse 6, and a life of loving the brethren, in verses 9 and 10. So the first test of assurance, the first test to know that you know Jesus, is this. How do, no, how do I know if my, first is, my faith is real? Well, do you keep God's commandments? We could call this the obedience test or the fruit test. Remember our Lord said in Matthew 12 and 
talking to the Pharisees that by the, by the fruit you shall know the fruit, and a good tree, by the fruit shall know the tree, and a good tree will bring good fruit. In another passage, in another passage, Jesus says the same thing as John, but instead of using the idea of knowing him, he uses the idea of loving him. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love, this is Jesus is speaking, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, love for Jesus is not equal to obedience. You hear that? Love for Jesus is not equal to obedience. He says, if you love me, then you are going to keep my commandments. It follows from, but love for Jesus will always result in obedience. They can never be divorced from one another. This is not the only test that John gives to us, but it is an important test of your faith alongside the love test and the belief test. And we have to pass all three. It's not, a, it's not graded on the curve. It's not a no, 50% or, or plus, or as it's being argued currently uh, nationwide, that a 40% grade should, uh, should be a passing grade. Uh, that's not what John is arguing here for. These three things, your love, your, your obedience, and your faith, are what will drive you to assurance that you know Jesus for real. And John follows up the affirmation that, that those who know Jesus obey him with the denial that lack of obedience denies any claim one may make it. Look at verse 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So somebody said, I know Jesus. I love him. He's my, my savior. And yet has no regard for what the Bible says. There's a, a special term for that person in the Bible. And that term is liar. He is not faithful to what the word says. I remember once uh, uh, Pastor Lehman was counseling somebody. or we having a conversation with somebody. I was in the room with him dealing with this person, and he said this, and it struck me how true it was. Pastor Newman said to this man, your life is speaking so loudly that I cannot hear your words. Do you hear that? And our life has to speak the same way as our words do when we claim faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in verse 4 is a person who says, I know Jesus, but this, but his life is marked by disobedience to the word of God. And we read a verse like this, and we think of all those bad, wicked people, right? Uh, we, we, the, this person, we think of, we usually have a list of names that we equate people to. When we think of really bad people, right? Oh, this person's wicked, like Hitler, or Stalin, or Mao Zedong, or any other wicked people that we consider super wicked. But that's not really what John's talking about here. This person in verse 4 that says, I know Jesus but doesn't obey him, and is called a liar, doesn't have to be ranked up there with the names we usually list when we want to evoke images of wicked people. And he probably won't be, because this person is in the church. He's not talking about somebody out there. He's talking about people in the church that are saying this. Now, we usually think of sins of commission, things that we do that God forbade. forbade. 
So we think of the big ones. Oh, he's an adulterer, or he's a, a fornicator, or he's a this and that. Yeah, I think because he's doing things that God commanded them not to do. But that's not the only kind of sin there is there, right? There's sins of omission, not doing the things that God commands, not loving your wife, not submitting to your husband, refusing to be reconciled, being bitter. These are all characteristics of those who claim to believe in Jesus, but whose lives don't really reflect that claim. To those who say, I know Jesus, but it's marked by lack of love for wife, lack of submission to husband, lack of uh, reconciliation in relationships, lack of uh, love and kindness toward of the, that's how we are, a person is characterized. John says that person's a liar. They really don't know what it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. John says that such person is a liar and that there's no truth in him. John likes the contrast. There's no middle ground with him. It's either one thing or the other. But it is important that we notice that John is not talking about, John is talking about what characterizes a person's life. John's not talking about the struggle with sin that every believer goes through in daily life. We all struggle with sin. With sin. We all, uh, I hope you're the same. There's not a day that I can arrive at the end and say, I did not struggle with sin today. That day doesn't exist for me. And I sure hope that's how it is for you too, because otherwise I'll be the odd man out. And that will be said for me uh, there. So John is not talking about the struggle with sin that every believer goes through daily. He's talking about the lack of the struggle. He's talking about, he's talking about the guy who says, or the girl who says he believes in, she believes in Jesus, and yet doesn't care. There's no struggle, because they just go on sinning regardlessly. The sinning without repenting is what John is addressing here. The living in sin without really changing anything about it. John is emphasizing here the importance of matching profession with practice. This matches really our Lord's practice and teaching as well. In one of the most gracious and compassionate accounts of Jesus' ministering to a repentance center, he ends that interaction with the woman by saying, Go and do what? Sin no more. In John 8, probably uh, it will, one of the most beautiful depictions of our gracious Lord dealing with one who was an outcast of society, who has been judged unjustly by men, he goes like this. In John 8, 10, 11, he says, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Can you imagine hearing those words from your Savior? And if you're a true believer, that's what you're going to hear from his mouth at the last day. I do not condemn you. And he follows that up. Go and sin no more. And here's not an absolute statement of sin no more. It's a continuum. Go and do not keep on sinning. Don't have a life that's marked by sin. So, you know. That's what John is teaching. And so that we didn't think that he was speaking of a specific set of commandments, John let us know that he's talking about obedience to the whole of the Word of God. So in verse 3, he says, keep my commandments. But in verse 5, read, look what he says in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. 
By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You said there in the beginning of verse 5, but whoever keeps his word. So, trying to picture what's going on in John's mind. He's writing and he uses the word, keep my commandments, keep the commandments uh, of the Bible. And then he started anticipating, you know what? Every person in the church is a lawyer. We all have, uh, we are our lawyers in our, at our heart. And we will try to redefine things the way that fits our context. So he said, keep the commandments. And he probably is meaning the Ten Commandments. So if I can't find something that's outside of the Ten Commandments, I'm not really called. I don't have to obey that. No. And so John says, okay, I'm going to use the word, the, the word, word of God here, so that they know I'm talking about from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And that's what we are called to do. If your faith is genuine, if my faith is real, if we want to know that we know Christ, one of the things we're going to look at is when we read things in the Word of God, do we say, yes, Lord, I submit to you in what you're saying, or do we say, shake a fist in our hearts toward what the Bible is, is saying here? And look where he says in verse 5 again, he says, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And this love here is not the love of, that God has for us, but the love that we have for God. And the reason we know that is that the love that God has for us doesn't need to be perfected. It doesn't need to be completed. That's what the word perfected here means. Our love for God is made complete or perfected by our, our obedience to His Word. Our obedience makes our love for God complete in that the inward reality of our hearts is displayed in our outward actions. Look at what John says in chapter 5, verse 3. It says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So here's our love for God, that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. To those who truly believe in Jesus Christ, and they come to a passage in the Bible, and that passage says, this is what a believer does. He doesn't go, Ugh, can't believe it. Let me put my burden on. I'm going to follow obedience to the Lord. Look how great I am of a sufferer because I'm... No. Their commandment is not burdensome to the one who believes. You know why? Because they know that that commandment comes from a God who saved us in Jesus Christ, who only gives us what is good. Our Lord says, Come to me, all who you who are weary and who are heavy laden, those that are tired and carrying a lot, for my yoke is easy and my burden is what? It's light. And that's the attitude of the one who believes in Lord Jesus Christ when he comes across what the Lord wants us to do. But it's important to mention here that our love for him is a response to his love for us. Look what he says in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why do we love God? Because God loved us. And in response to that love, a love demonstrated on the cross of Calvary, the death that was yours and yet Christ took upon Him. In response to that, then we obey and we love Him. 
F.F. Bruce says, obedience is the full flowering of our love for Jesus. It's the full flowering. It's a full display of our love for Jesus. So John uses three, these three images here. He uses the idea of knowing Jesus, the idea of being in Him, and in verse 6 it switches to the idea of abiding in Him. Look again at verse 6 of chapter 2. He who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. To abide means to remain or to dwell uh, in, um, in, in something, in a place, here in a person. And we can also say that abide means live in Jesus. Since John, at the end of the verse, used the word walk, which means to live, not just to put a foot in front of the other, but to live uh, there. So abide, dwell, remain, live, in a certain way, is a characteristic of a believer and in here is abide in him. How, how does that work? Well, again, F.F. F. Bruce, uh, the British scholar, helps us by saying, it is the life of the vine in the branches that enables them to produce the fruit of the vine. So the life of Christ in his people will be manifested as their behavior resembles him. So how do we abide in him? How, do we, how does our life demonstrate that we abide in him? By our producing the fruit that comes from the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? By being rooted into Him and by feeding on Him by the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary things that God has given us, the preaching of the Word, the Lord's table, baptism, prayer, fellowship of the saints, is really what empowers us to live a life of obedience. Not the extraordinary, not the being zapped from heaven, not the somehow having this life-changing experience, but the everyday walk with Christ, walking with His people, being part of His church, feeding upon Him on the table, feeding upon Him in the preaching of the Word. That's what enables us to life, live a life that's abiding in Christ. Isn't that what Christ says in John 15, verses 4 and 5? Abide in Him, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. And then he ends by saying, For without me, you can do what? Nothing. So John is saying that if someone is in Christ, he can't go in any other way but the way of obedience. Because Christ is compelling him to go that way. It is not that you have to do it on your own. Christ is doing for you, in you. That's what the vine does for the branches. And that's why if you claim that you abide in Christ and yet there's no evidence in your life of that, you have no reason to be confident in that claim. If we are to walk like Christ did, we need to know Him. We need to follow Him. So how, how did He walk? How did He walk? And I'll end with this. Just two, two things. He walked full of grace and full of truth. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.14. I don't know why that came up. John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These will also be characteristics of those who abide in Him. I had planned for us to go through three paragraphs on the confession on page 858 of your hymnal now and so on, but we're not going to do that. 
I'll end by saying this. Assurance of faith is attainable, though not of the essence of faith. You can be a believer who is not sure of your salvation. We are commanded to seek that. John wants the true believer to know what, that he belongs to Christ. But you can be a true believer and still struggle with that assurance. But we are to pursue it. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Truths We Confess, suggests that there are four groups of people in the world as far as regeneration and faith in Christ goes. It says there is one group that, that consists of those who believe in Jesus and know that their faith is real and are therefore assured of their salvation. That's where we all want to get. There's a second group, those who believe in Jesus but struggle figuring out the reality of their faith. The third group, those who don't believe in Jesus and don't care that they don't. And the fourth group, those who don't believe in Jesus and either pretend they do or are misguiding their thinking. That's the most dangerous group to be in. If that, you are in that group, you're going to hell and you don't know it. So which group are you in? Claims of faith result in actions of faith. That is, obedience is the result of our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's really a matter of honesty on your part, on my part. If you say you believe in the God of the Bible, then act according to what the, that God says in the Bible. The Apostle Paul, talking to Titus, said this concerning false teachers that come into the church in Crete. He says, They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Do your works deny your profession? If so, the solution is easy. I'll back up. If so, the solution is simple. Simple is not the same as easy. <laughs> Repent. That's it. Repent. Right now, right here. Repent and turn to Christ and fall in His ways. Are you struggling to know if your faith is real? And there are people there that do that. And most of us will do that. Are there days that I wonder, is my faith real? And I, is, is what I say I believe really, do I believe that? I never question the existence of God. I never question the reality of Christ. I sometimes question the reality of my own faith, especially in seasons of sin in my life. So I think we all struggle with that at some period or not. Some people, because of the way they, their personalities and so on, tend to struggle with that more than others. But are you struggling to know if your faith is real? So let me ask you three questions. Are you obeying God's word with a joyful heart? Is your life... The, 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 I have a professor called uh, Stuart Scott. And we love that sound. It's the sound of future, by the way. Uh, uh, we have a professor, in a degree I'm working on, it's called Stuart Scott. And he also talks about the film strip of one's life. It's an illustration that's going to stop working soon, right? Because nobody knows what a film strip anymore but is the movie of your life since you've come to faith in Jesus Christ a display of growth in your obedience to Christ and sometimes display is like 
0.1 in the Richter scale, no, just a little bump. Sometimes it's a big bump. Sometimes it's just facing the right direction. Sometimes it's just oh, crawling in your hands and knees trying to go towards Christ. This is all growth. That, that's all growth. If that's the movie of your life, then you know that you know Jesus. Do you love the brethren? No, I love people. I just don't like the peop- these over here. That doesn't count. As I've told before, I had a, a teacher when I was school principal that said that I love teaching. I just hate the students. Uh, that's not really a possibility. Do you love the brethren? Can you genuinely say, I love God's people? Then you can know that you know Jesus. Do you believe the Jesus of the Bible? That's the third test. We're not going to look at it today. Do you believe the Jesus of the Bible? Do you believe that he's both God and man in one person who lived a perfect life, a life you cannot live, who died the death separated from his father, a separation that you deserve for your sins, and who gloriously came back to life to give you newness of life? Do you know that, Jesus? Then you can know that you know him. And you can be assured that God is working a great work in your heart. And you will consummate that work at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when your perfect soul and your perfect body be united together in fellowship with Christ forever and ever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for that you're good to us. Thank you for giving us your spirit to guide us in our understanding of your word. And we pray that we would indeed know that we know Jesus. For asking his name. Amen.